Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, Can He Do That listeners? Allison here. This week, I am so excited for you to hear the second episode of our 2021 series on the Biden presidency called Year One, The Issues. During Biden's first year in office, we'll be taking time to explore some of the bigger policy challenges that his administration faces. Issues that predate the pandemic and remain on the minds of many Americans. Our first episode in this series back in April focused on student debt. In our second episode, we're examining President Biden's vow to end housing discrimination during his presidency. Here's the show. On the campaign trail, Joe Biden pledged to do what he could to dismantle systemic racism. And as president, he's taken some steps toward that goal. In his first week in office, President Biden signed four executive actions that his administration said were aimed at increasing racial equity. Among them was one action aimed at strengthening anti-discrimination housing policies, policies that were weakened under President Trump. Today, I'll be shortly signing an, a, a, an additional package of executive actions to continue this vital work. Housing, for example. Housing is a right in America, and home ownership is an essential tool to wealth creation and to be passed down to generations. Today, I'm directing the Department of Housing and Urban Affairs and Urban Development to redress the historical racism in federal housing policies. Today, And Biden says that's merely the beginning of his efforts to fight discrimination in housing. The president has directed his administration to end racist practices and to create more equal opportunities when it comes to where Americans live. As of early 2020, only 44% of Black Americans owned homes, compared with 74% of white families. And evidence shows that the chance to own a home and have safe, reliable housing could lay the groundwork for generational success. Because where a person lives is closely tied to educational, employment, health, and wealth opportunities. Despite Biden's efforts to tackle issues related to housing, some critics say he's not going far enough to correct inequities. But how far do the president's powers actually reach when it comes to the state of housing in American cities? See, housing policy isn't totally controlled by the federal government. Decisions over land use, like what types of housing can be built and where, are largely made by state and local governments. Some of those policies have discriminatory histories and are enforced in a way that adversely impacts lower-income Americans and residents of color. So how much power does Biden have here? Can he really put an end to decades' worth of discriminatory housing practices? And what role does the federal government and the Department of Housing and Urban Development play in creating more fair and affordable housing in American cities? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of American government in a time of deep division. I'm Allison Michaels. So this country's had a long history of discriminatory housing policies that have directly contributed to the wealth gap between Black and white Americans. That's Washington Post business reporter Tracy Jam. Her work focuses on the intersection of race and the economy. 
And that includes also a wide racial disparity in income and in home ownership and other economic measures. Home ownership is one of the main contributors to the wealth gap, right? In this country, owning a home is seen as a mark of, you know, entering and having made it in the middle class. The Biden administration has promised to correct these unequal housing policies. Biden has issued executive orders calling on HUD to make sure it's operating according to the Fair Housing Act of 1968, the act that banned discrimination when selling or renting homes. His administration had billed these executive orders as early steps towards his goal of dismantling systemic racism. Housing is obviously a huge part of racial inequality, both historically in our nation's discriminatory policies, as well as now as it relates to the wealth gap between Black and white Americans. So in these executive actions, he was trying to strengthen anti-discrimination housing policies that were significantly weakened under the Trump administration. He was trying to push HUD to reinstate some Obama-era regulations that were key to enforcing decades-old federal fair housing laws. But it will take a lot to undo decades of discriminatory practices. Some of these practices are deeply baked into our country's history. One example is called redlining, where the federal government and banks would historically deny mortgages to people in mostly minority neighborhoods. There was actually maps drawn up with red lines around areas that would not be uh, lucrative for banks to invest in. They also charge borrowers more who have homes in those redlined areas. Redlining has been illegal for decades, but this practice still continues. And enforcement against housing discrimination was drastically scaled back under the Trump administration. And what were the circumstances of that rollback? How did that happen? So, So part of the 1968 Fair Housing Act also includes a provision called, this is really wonky, affirmatively furthering fair housing. And it's just a rule that really wasn't enforced very much for decades. And during the Obama administration, they tightened it up and they basically tied federal funding to making communities assess housing segregation in their neighborhoods and write up reports on the barriers to housing segregation and what their plans are to address it. It was controversial in that a lot of communities just thought this was extra work and it took them time and resources and they just didn't want to do it. So the Trump administration rolled it back and they said, you basically don't have to do this anymore. Biden is pushing for the reinstatement of that regulation that requires communities to identify barriers to racial integration and disparities in access to jobs, to transportation, to good schools, or risk losing federal funding. But this is a process that HUD has to undertake, and I expect him to do it. Mr. Chairman, before I begin my testimony, I would very much like to take a moment to express my condolences at the passing of former Vice President Walter Mondale, a former member of this body, who, along with Senator Ed Brooke, championed the 1968 Fair Housing Act. HUD will honor his legacy by redoubling our efforts to use housing as a platform that advances equality and opportunity for the American people. HUD Secretary Marsha Fudge is also expected to reinstate another Obama-era rule from 2013. It's aimed at barring the housing industry from enacting policies that are quote-unquote race-neutral, but they end up hurting Black and Latino Americans disproportionately. That 2013 rule is called the Disparate Impact Rule. It prevented the housing industry from using biased practices, 
Things like requiring tenants to undergo a criminal background check or prohibiting the construction of multifamily homes. It even prevented using artificial intelligence to predict creditworthiness. But this rule was rolled back under the Trump administration. And last year, HUD reported more than 7,700 complaints alleging housing discrimination on the basis of disability and race. Under Biden's earlier executive orders, HUD is expected to reinstate this disparate impact rule. The Trump administration also repealed regulations requiring communities to identify and address barriers to racial integration or risk losing federal funds. They said it was too burdensome for communities. It used up too many federal resources. Former HUD Secretary Ben Carson had criticized these rules for forcing communities to find, quote, anything that looks like discrimination, end quote, rather than responding to the actual problems. Biden hasn't only addressed housing issues through executive orders. The president's Jobs and Infrastructure Bill, or the American Jobs Plan, aims to boost what Biden calls infrastructure at home. So his recent $2 trillion Jobs and Infrastructure Plan included $213 billion dollars to just rebuild and retrofit more than 2 million homes. He's also wanting to invest $40 billion to improve public housing. You know, we're also uh, going to build 1.5 million new energy-efficient homes and public housing units that are going to benefit communities three times over. One, by alleviating the the affordable housing crisis. Two, by increasing energy efficiency. And three, by reducing the racial wealth gap linked to home ownership. And there's a huge need for that. There is significant infrastructure issues. The the housing is aged. There's mold. There's rodent infestations in a lot of these complexes across the country, um, especially in New York City. But it's not a reality until Congress agrees to pass that. And on that point, how much housing policy is actually made in Congress? A lot of these are local housing policies. The president can have the overarching goal and the party's goal of you know, pushing for more equitable and more affordable housing. But the purse strings are controlled by Congress, so they have to pass a budget to make these plans a reality. And a lot of the regulations that the president is pushing for, like zoning regulations, are done at the local level. But he can incentivize it. So one example is President Biden has talked about eliminating exclusionary zoning and harmful land use policies. So for decades, these zoning laws, like minimum lot sizes, prohibitions on multifamily housing, single-family zoning, they've inflated housing and construction costs, and they've made it less affordable and more difficult for families, including Black families, to buy in places with single-family homes that traditionally have had better school opportunities, you know, better commuting opportunities, better access to jobs. So President Biden has talked about wanting to eliminate exclusionary zoning policies, but that's a local thing. So what he's doing is calling on Congress to incentivize this by enacting this new grant program that will give uh, more funding to local jurisdictions that take concrete steps to eliminate these barriers to affordable housing. The president certainly doesn't have unilateral power over housing policy. Instead, it involves a lot of different stakeholders, among them the executive branch, Congress, and then, of course, local jurisdictions. So what does it look like at a local level when an American city faces housing discrimination? Hi, everyone. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and I'm here to tell you about my weekly podcast, Dark Down East. Each episode, I take you to my home in New England, 
where we truly get to know the people at the center of the cases we dive into. Join me and dig into some cases you won't hear about anywhere else. Listen to new episodes of Dark Down East every Thursday, or check out the extensive catalog of existing episodes now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Atlanta, Georgia is one of the fastest growing cities in the country. But that growth has meant that in some cases, there's not enough housing available to accommodate the population boom. And a host of outdated zoning laws are standing in the way of keeping the city affordable for its poorer residents. When zoning was created, of course, as a mechanism in, in American cities, it was, it was created to stop truly noxious things, incredible overcrowding and, and pollution in cities. But over the years, it's now been used to such a, a fine degree to exclude people. And it's really started to suffocate the city. That's Tim Keene. He's the director of planning and community development for the city of Atlanta. Tim says zoning laws in his city are discriminatory and really hinder progress on housing efforts. And it's not just Atlanta. Exclusionary zoning is a practice that keeps affordable housing out of neighborhoods through land use and building code requirements. It's been used for decades to keep lower income people out of wealthy and middle class neighborhoods, which in turn prevents these low income families from having access to the education and employment opportunities that are typically found in wealthier neighborhoods. The reason we focus so much on zoning is because we say in Atlanta that affordability and diversity are essential to us as a city. And if we don't address the discriminatory practices of zoning, we will be a city full of very affluent people and very poor people that are living in in publicly subsidized housing. This is not unique, again, to Atlanta. And if you go back and look at the city's history, the original zoning in Atlanta didn't have such a thing as single-family zoning. That came later when people started to use zoning as a mechanism for excluding people, whether it's based on race or income. Discriminatory practices in zoning started in the early to middle part of the 20th century in Atlanta. Can you clarify for me how you're addressing zoning and and who exactly is changing these policies? The city of Atlanta is proposing changes to our zoning after a long public process looking at the scale of Atlanta's challenge when it comes to housing affordability. And we wanted to engage Atlantans in this question of, if we go from a city of 500,000 or so people to a city of more than a million, what are your expectations in terms of housing affordability? And those expectations are that we will continue to maintain the diversity of housing. We will maintain the, the diversity of income levels in the city that we currently have. Well, in order to achieve that, we, we must change zoning because zoning limits to a large degree what people can build in the city. And what we did is we really studied the city's physical characteristics, and we have made proposals for changing the zoning that are consistent with the unique physical characteristics of the city. We're not proposing that we change Atlanta fundamentally in terms of the the nature of the city. We're saying, can we work with what we have to fine-tune our zoning such that we can achieve affordable housing in ways that seem natural to Atlanta. So for instance, much of the city is single-family zoning. So 60% or so of Atlanta has single-family zoning. And what we're proposing 
is that if we allowed on all of our single-family lots a second unit, a second accessory unit, not necessarily a separate building, but but somehow allow a second unit, whether it's in your backyard or it's attached to your house or it's in your basement, we can produce housing naturally in the city through the private market that would far exceed anything that we could achieve by through public subsidy. So even a simple change like that, which is a huge challenge in a city like Atlanta, could have a massive result in terms of the housing that we produce in the city for people of, of more modest means. And why are simple changes like this such a challenge in Atlanta? It's a challenge in Atlanta like it is in all cities because honestly, people don't see themselves as part of the solution. You know, I, I think people are very comfortable saying developers must be responsible for building affordable housing in our city. And honestly, they should be partly responsible, but it's not everything. Or people might say, we need to have more public money to help subsidize affordable housing. And, and people are comfortable enough saying that if we can afford it financially. And clearly, that is part of what we need to do. But the, the step that very few people are willing to take is that somehow my neighborhood should contribute to this. And that, in fact, my neighborhood contributing to it is a positive thing. Part of being in a city is that there's lots of different kinds of people around. And we can enable people to live in the city that work in our restaurants and that, that teach our children at school and work for the city and provide services. And this is a good thing, and it's a positive thing. But people are very reluctant to support any kind of change from the status quo. And that's a great challenge for people. But it, it, it takes a tremendous amount of, of honest, thoughtful discussion between the city and the residents of the city in order to achieve solutions like this. Given those challenges, do you wish the federal government had a bigger role in solving zoning and housing problems? Or, or do you think that this is something that should be solved at the local level? No, I think the federal government should absolutely have a bigger role in this. You know, dealing with housing is you need to do this and that and that also and that other thing and everything you can possibly think of. There isn't a city in America that would stand up and say, we have achieved our housing goals. We are a city that's affordable the way we expect it to be. There's not a single one. And, and so if the list of things that we must do as cities, zoning, inclusionary uh, zoning related to developers building housing, public subsidy, you know, the whole list that you might have, we need a longer list than that. And it's difficult for cities on their own to navigate this challenge. It is fundamentally essential that the federal government see themselves as part of the housing solution in this country. And, and I'm very hopeful given the new administration we have in Washington, which already is speaking to cities in ways that represent a partnership around housing that we can, over this administration, change the whole dynamic as it relates to the federal government's role in housing. Uh, what the uh, plan is, is to have a discussion uh, with communities about how we could make zoning less exclusionary and more inclusionary. It, I, I'm a former mayor. I would never be in support of demanding or dictating that communities 
have to change their zoning to do a certain thing. But I think it is important as we are talking about building and or retrofitting or rehabilitating, whatever term you'd like to use, housing, we know that the cost of those are significantly higher when the zoning and is more restricted. Every conversation we've had with HUD so far has been a positive one and has only given us optimism. The Biden administration continues to talk about moving forward with combating discrimination in housing. But some critics are more skeptical about how much the president can actually deliver on equity. I turn back to reporter Tracy Jan one last time. So, Tracy, when we look at all of this together, are President Biden and his administration really making effective strides to to rid the country of discriminatory housing practices? What do the experts say? Is he doing enough? So the Biden administration has done what civil rights advocates have expected as the minimum, affirming fair housing rights and reversing what the Trump administration did to roll back those rights. HUD Secretary Marsha Fudge has already moved to reinstate fair housing regulations that were gutted under President Trump. And that's one of the most tangible steps that the Biden administration has taken so far to address systemic racism. Advocates see those key moves as a promising sign, of course. But they tell me that the devil is in the details. Another promising sign is when advocates ask Secretary Fudge to make fair housing a top priority at HUD, they say she immediately did so without hesitation. In contrast, when the same request was made to former Secretary Ben Carson, they say he failed. One of the major things that civil rights leaders really want to see now is for President Biden to nominate a fair housing expert for the position of Assistant Secretary for Fair Housing and Equal Opportunity. They are closely watching this appointment, and they say that will signal how closely the administration is listening to the concerns of civil rights experts. All right, well, I'm sure you too will be closely watching for that appointment and other news out of HUD in the coming weeks. Thank you so much for your time, Tracy. Okay, thank you. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? Can He Do That? will be taking a break next week, so you will not have a new episode from us, but you can expect us right back with you the following week. Thanks so much for listening. Can He Do That? is a team effort here at The Post. This episode was produced by Sharla Freeland with help from Arjun Singh, logo art from Greg Manifold, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. 
What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now.